welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. And if you're watching this on YouTube, thank you for lending me the eyeballs. Today, I usually say I'm excited, but this one, it's a little more than that. So I have with me Brent Adamson. Brent, please say hi to the folks. Hi to the folks. How are you guys doing today? And I came across you, besides reading your book, right? Uh, I think the Challenger sale was the first time I came up, I stumbled across you, probably like 100,000 other people, right? Did that make you a superstar, by the way? Did the Challenger make you a superstar? Um, uh, no, at least not in my family. That is for sure. But I mean, it's, it's done, it's done very well. And, and, uh, and it's, if anything, it's been very humbling, but it's, uh, the whole goal of the book was just, we had these, what we thought were really important ideas we want to get out in the world. So we put them out in the world. Um, but, uh, it, the fact that it's done so well has been, um, it's been pretty incredible. Well, there was a transition because you were CEB and now you're part yeah. of Gartner, right? Yeah. There was that transition. And the reason, like many, so I'll just sing the praises of the book. That made my, what I call the golden shelf. The, the book made my golden <laughs> shelf. The, go- <laughs> the golden shelf is only reserved for like 10 books, right? And that book, uh, that one plus the customer was at the... Um, the Challenger the Customer. Experience. No, and the Effortless Experience, yeah, by my colleagues. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, those three, I love those three books. But the Challenger sale, much like other people, the reason I liked it was, first of all, I think you scored a, a forward from Neil Rackham, didn't you? We did, yes. Neil Rackham. Yeah. And that, that blew me away because spin selling to me was always like the the gold standard. Yeah. You know, because it was yeah. it was actually the first, I think it was the first empirical-based study on actual sales yep. that I can remember. And then I always tell people, then came... I think it was December 2011, the Challenger yep. sale, right? Does that sound about right? That sounds and about I remember right. Yep. Reading, yeah, I remember reading the book. I actually read it. I, re- I remember reading it like two or three times. I'm not, that's not even just to compliment you. I read it and then go, did I just understand that correctly? The five types, archetypes? And I go, yeah. I go, this is it. This I believe. And it made me really rethink the whole sales process. And then I saw you present a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And you have... What I call, because I'm really critical of speakers. <laughs> I am, Brett. Brett, I'm really critical of speakers, Brett. <laughs> and I said, I love it. And I, I've termed your style the giddy style. Like the giddy, giddy style. No. Giddy All style. Right. Never heard okay. before. Brett, first time I'm dropping it right okay. here. Okay. All right. Style. There you Here's go. Why. Yeah. Because, because you're not a stuffed shirt. And you're, you're actually, you're like excited. You're giddy about the information <laughs> you're presenting. You know what I mean? And it comes yep. across. I said, dude, this guy's giddy when he's promoting. I mean, this is when you want to listen to somebody. And by the way, if you don't believe me, just check out his videos online. He's going to be really humble and modest, but uh, don't believe it, man. The, the guy's a superstar. So I want to talk you. about. You're welcome. The, the, I want to talk about sense making. Okay. Because I don't think it's getting enough attention. So I said, that's what I really wanted to reach out because I read the paper yeah. and I have it right here. How yeah. high performing sellers help today's overwhelmed buyers. And there was a couple of things you said in there that I was like, again, I was having moments because I was like, and, and I mean, this is all seriousness, is that you, your group, you come at an angle that not a lot of people talk about and you just shift the perspective by one degree. And that's all you need to kind of go, oh, I get it. And so I want to go through this thing called the sense making seller. Let the folks know what this study is about before we jump into it. Kind of set the frame. Sure, I'd be happy to. And by the way, there's a there's a version of this material that's working its way through HBR right now. So hopefully that'll be out soon. Um, and uh, I've got a lot of people saying book number three. Uh, so we'll see. Um, Christmas is coming. That's often what I do over Christmas is write books. So there. Okay. So all right. So the sense. So back up. I guess just one half step at least, Victor. The um, 
So at Gartner and before that, of course, CEB, we're, we're a research shop. And some people will denigrate us for that. Some people will celebrate us for that. But one way or another, we're, it's our mission in life, and this has been my entire career, um, to try just to understand the world a little bit better with really high-quality research, quantitative and qualitative. For the last 20 years, I've applied that sort of tool, that set of, that toolbox to, to the world of sales and marketing, B2B sales and marketing and, and customer service. Um, so most recently, now what's, what's interesting, some people tend to overlook uh, is the Challenger sale. The book, as you mentioned, came out in 2011 based on research we conducted in 2009. So that body of work is now 11 years old, believe it or not, which is hard, at least for me to wrap my brain around. Um, and so the story keeps evolving. And it's, the story doesn't just keep evolving because we keep researching. The story keeps evolving because the world keeps evolving. And I think most importantly for all of us in B2B selling, uh, the story keeps evolving because B2B buying keeps evolving. In fact, this is, uh, I, I would say most of the most productive research we've conducted over the last five or six years at least has really always started with a selling perspective but almost inevitably landed on a buying perspective and how B2B buying behavior is changing and what that means for us. Um, we can come back to that point a little bit later if you'd like. There's all sorts of ways we can unpack that. But most recently, so this would be, uh, well, uh, we, we actually, we did a great big study this year on first-line sales managers. We'll park that too. But so about a year and a half ago, so pre-COVID times, you're in the, in the before times when we all had like airline status and traveled and things like that. Uh, 2019, we conducted a large-scale study of sales reps. And this is one of the biggest sales rep studies we had done since the challenge work, trying to understand what sets the best sellers apart from everyone else today. Um, and we came at it from a very specific angle because one of the things that we'd seen bubbling up in our research of late was just the role that information is playing in a B2B purchase today. And, and we've talked about this for a long, you may have seen that big blue arrow that we talked about and still talk about a little bit for a number of years where this is a, is a graphic of a big blue arrow with a 57% on it. And that stat was simply that customers are on average 57% of the way through a purchase prior to proactively picking up the phone or reaching out to supplier sales rep to get their input on whatever it is they're doing. So we knew that for a long time, we knew that, and that that one blue arrow, I call it the, simply the blue arrow, that's made it around the world. It's been quoted and shown oh up in all God. sorts of decks. It's been and everywhere. By the way, you guys, and you guys have taken a beating on that thing too also. Ah, you know, How do that's they know okay. 57%? How do we know it's not 65? Some 89, you know, it's like, you're missing the point. Exactly right. Yeah. And by the way, so two answers. One, research. Two, yeah, it's it's almost more of a metaphor than it is a data point. But the uh, but nonetheless, the story, which is where I focus most of my energy these days, is the story behind or on top of the data. And the story there was customers are, have become so empowered with information, their ability to learn and research on their own that they can delay contact with a seller ever later. Okay, so now fast forward to 2019. We continue to study this world of information, what happens when customers can learn on their own and how do how do sales reps win the right to even have a customer conversation? So one of the things we hear from CSOs all the time is the challenge of access. Access seems to be the number one sort of theme that we hear from heads of sales around, help me with this particular problem. My customers don't wanna to talk to my sales reps. They don't see value in my, talking to my sales reps. They do most of their buying without my sales reps. What do my sales reps need to do in order to win the right to either have more conversations or what do they need to do to deliver incremental and differentiated value in those conversations? Not unlike what we were being asked 12 years ago when we started the challenge work, but this is a very different context now in this world of information. All right, so we go out and we study customer buying. And lo and behold, uh, Victor, we found something really interesting. It's really shifted our thinking, which is, it's a very simple question, and it, it's but it's nonetheless forms the foundation of a, a pretty big idea, which is one of the questions we asked customers in this particular body of research. This is just over a thousand B two B buyers, all involved in some complex B two B purchase. We simply asked them uh, on a scale of one to seven, strongly disagree to strongly agree. Um, to, to just react to the statement, the information that we encountered as part of this purchase was largely or generally of high quality. 
So the information that we encountered as part of this purchase was generally of high quality. And what was interesting, Victor, is 89% of the customers we surveyed agreed or strongly agreed. In other words, virtually everybody said, yeah, it was all pretty good. And what seems to be so innocuous, we think is, is the kernel of a really powerful insight for all of us in sales, because that's your customer, thousands of them all over the world saying, you know what, it's not just that there's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of good information out there. It's, it's, it's relevant. It's backed by data. It's got insight. It's got thought leadership. It's, you know, it's, it, there's, there's white papers and there's infographics and there's subject matter experts who in the old days would fly in, but now uh, what, zoom in or whatever uh, and join us and tell us about their data and their perspective. And everybody is so smart these days. And, and by the way, if there's a really interesting backstory that's like, well, how is that any different? Why is, how did that happen? Right. And the answer is, I think there's a, oh, there's so many directions we can go here, but one of the things that's so interesting is as, as suppliers, B2B suppliers, particularly big B2B suppliers have found first their products get commoditized, so they build solutions and their solutions get commoditized. So they have to look for a new version of differentiation. How am I gonna differentiate myself when the things that I sell are now less differentiated? So that's I think when Challenger hit and was such a big deal was you differentiate yourself not on what you sell, but how you sell on the quality of the insight that you bring to the marketplace to change the way your customer thinks about themselves rather than you. And right about that same time, so 2009 to essentially 2018, uh, a couple other things happened at the same time. Companies got more access to more data than ever before. The MarTech stack became something hugely important to marketing organizations. Content marketing as a, as a, as a practice, as a, as a science, became incredibly uh, important. And all at the same time, CEOs around the world who found themselves struggling to differentiate on their quality of their products or solutions said, the way we're going to differentiate ourselves is by becoming a thought leader to our customers. Mm -hmm. And everybody mm -hmm. played the same card at the same time. By the way, you and I are both in the thought leadership business of the strikes close to home, right? Which is the way I'm going to stand out my marketplace is become a thought leader to my customers. I'm going to produce more content with more insight and more in because we want to demonstrate to our customers that we have smart things to say, that we have research, we have insights, that we have, we have thought leadership. So they'll trust us. They'll come to us first. And they'll look to us as the beacon of hope to solve their toughest problems when those challenges arise. And it all made sense. <laughs> but when you put all this stuff together, because now marketing has got more data and more technology to pump out that kind of content at a higher volume than ever before. Most marketers have a some sort of dashboard that blinks red on the first Tuesday of every month saying, you need a new blog post. It's like crank out more content. We have more platforms through which we can do that. You and I are content creators. So we totally get this, right? Where that leaves your customer, however, is no longer a place of empowerment. Because now your customers are not just overwhelmed with the quantity of information. So it used to be just like, man, there's a lot out there. And I got to sift through it, finding the signals from the noise, separating the wheat from the chaff. But what do you do, Victor, when all of a sudden, most of it's actually pretty good. So it's not just a massive amount of information, but it's a massive amount of good information. And this is a new challenge. This is new to us, which is in the smartness arms race, where we've all tried to demonstrate to our customers that we're smarter than everyone else. It turns out being really, really smart makes you more or less the same as everybody else. And your customers, our customers, where they land is a place where I now can do more research than ever before, find higher quality information than I ever could in the past, and you where I'm now confused at a higher level. 
And this mm -hmm. is when, when we look at the data. So uh, I should actually, I should pull it up in front of me, but I've, I'll do it from memory. But, you know, somewhere between four, it's about 45% of customers told us that the trustworthy amount of information they found as part of the purchase was overwhelming. And the, mm -hmm. um, and what's interesting about that, Victor, is the, it's not just the amount of information was overwhelming, but the amount of trustworthy information is overwhelming. More importantly, just about, uh, just right, right again, right 43, 45% of customers told us the amount of, tr the, the, the trustworthy information we found was also conflicting. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because I, I did a meeting about mm -hmm. two years ago on this topic when we first found it in, uh, it happened to be in Palo Alto. And we talked about essentially that that saying smart things to your customers has become effectively commoditized because we're all saying mm -hmm. smart things. And, and there was a head of sales there who said, yeah, but Brent, I did what you told me to do. We're doing what you told me to do. I'm doing the challenger. You wrote a book on it. It's be challenges, <laughs> say smart things. So while my entire industry is telling my customers they need to zig, I'm out there telling my customers they need to zag, and I've got better insight than ever to tell them to do that. And and he's not wrong. That is, in fact, at the heart and soul much of what Challenger is about. But I said, but think about it from today's perspective, from your customer's perspective. Think about where they are now. So now I've got one company or maybe multiple companies telling me to zig, and they've got data, they've got research, they've got information, they've got uh, they've got experts. It's all relevant, and you, they're telling me to zig. You're telling me to zag, and you've got data, you've got experts, you've got white papers, you've got. It's like, I don't know what to do. And this is your customer's day. So we're kind of just trapped. We're like, ah, I don't know. So see, what do you do is you wind up doing even more research. And by the way, behavioral psychologists is well beyond our research. They study this stuff in really fascinating ways. And what happens is you get, you get stuck in these learning loops where uh, when you study something, you do research and find there's more information out there than you anticipated, more relevant information, you realize, oh, <clears> there's <throat> things I need to think about. Maybe I should do even more research. And do more research, you find more right. stuff. And you wind up in this, this trap of... of of, um, I wanted to emphasize something because it's yeah. important. Because we haven't even gotten I, to the sense-making idea yet, but this is the no, backdrop no, 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 it's okay, we but have this, to understand. This is great yeah. backdrop. Yeah. The the you know there I always you know I, I emphasize to people there's buyer's regret and buyer's yeah. remorse. Yeah. Buyer's remorse, you force me to buy something I didn't want it. Yeah. Buyer's regret is I'd rather not choose something because I might be wrong. That's so exactly right. Yeah. And 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 so what I love about you, I want you to really tie it down because you you said several things. One is you talked about that it's becoming that much more difficult for companies to reconcile yep. conflicting information. That was yep. one of the data points yep. you had. And, and I thought, you know, talk about that a little bit because it's almost ironic, you know, and what you're emphasizing here that now as a customer, and I think you had the number at 17% sales cycle was extended by 17% because I can't reconcile information. Talk about that a little bit because I thought I thought that was yeah. really interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, the seventeen percent that's a it's a different number, but you can come back by which is essentially yeah. when you ask customers how much across a typical B two B purchase process, which might be six months, twelve months, eighteen, twenty four months, how much of that time in a general purchase process do you tend actually speaking to supplier sales reps to get their input? And that was seventeen percent, which is terrifyingly mm -hmm. small. By the way, if you're one of three suppliers competing for a deal, you get maybe a third of that seventeen percent. So that goes back to that access problem we were talking about before. All right, so. But to your point here, one of the things that is um, that is is so clear in our data is that when we ask customers, how much time do you spend deconflicting information? Just taking all the different pieces of research that you've conducted across all those different people in the buying group and just try to find the single story, the version of the truth, or just the thing that you all collectively can agree on and believe. And that that is 15% is that number, which is 15% of a typical B2B purchase is spent just deconflicting information. And if you think about that 15%, it sounds like a small number. But again, if you've got a 24-month purchase cycle, that 15% is not measured in, hey, let's get together this afternoon and figure this out. That's measured in weeks, if not months sometimes, of just people trying to, to figure this out. Now, 
add to that, so one more piece of the backdrop, just to really capture what's going on here, I think it's so critical to understand. There's a, there's a parallel story that we've been sharing, uh, which has also been well reported over the last several years, is of course the number of stakeholders typically involved in a B2B purchase. And that number, when we first did that research in 2000, what it was, 10, 12, uh, was 5.4. And so the Challenger customer is all about the 5.4. We actually embodied them. We made it like an own, its own character in a story. That number every year we've studied since has gone up. And, and the average sits now somewhere right around, it's double digits, right around 11. And often when I talk to heads of sales, they say, yeah, 11 is probably too small. Um, now, there's there's an interesting side story about COVID and how that's changed access and changed numbers, but let's park that for now, because I think the broader story is still absolutely relevant, which is, you think about, Navik, where we are, which is all of these different stakeholders involved in a typical B2B purchase, and all of them accessing all of this, uh, this information of high quantity and high quality, and then they've got to come together and try and figure it all out, and it's it's just, it's so complicated. Because I don't know what to believe. And by the way, someone else believes something different than what I believe. This is like us trying to run democracy in this country. It's like, how's that going, right? So it's it's, it's like insanely complex. And what, what we find is that because B2B buyers more than anything else, you know what B2B buyers really are at the end of the day? They're human beings. We are all, right? We're all, we're all human beings. And what happens when human beings, as behavioral psychologists have demonstrated, find themselves in situations like this, what happens is that your confidence goes through the floor, right? It's like you, be, and I, I think in many ways, so I did a keynote for a big sales conference in Vegas last year, so 2019, the fall, and I simply built it the whole thing around this idea of confidence, because I think that's really the heart and soul of what we're seeing here is that B2B customers, because of their own internal complexity, because of all the different people with all the different opinions, because of all the different hoops they've got to jump through, because of all the information telling them to zig and to zag, we've, we've reached this point where you, you find, and we see this in our data, where the number one depressant of big deals is customers' confidence, or I suppose their lack of confidence. But it's not their lack of confidence in you, the sales rep. It's not their lack of confidence in you, the supplier, or your brand, or your products, or your service. It's their lack of confidence in themselves to make yes. a decisive decision in the face of so much uncertainty. And by the way, then just sprinkle a little COVID on top of that, right? And it just makes it that much harder. Um, and well, so I, I, want, yeah, I want to pause you there. Yeah, you, you hit a good part here because yeah. I want to accuse you of getting touchy-feely in the world. I'm going to accuse you of getting touchy-feely. Let's go for it. I'm a, I'm a four yeah. times liberal arts major. So this is what I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you had a great, you had a great quote that I had to pause. And it was before yeah. I saw it in this report. It says, in many ways, your quote, today's high quality deals are less about what customers know mm -hmm. and far more about how they feel That's right. about what they know. And I got to be honest, that was like a mental break. I just, I just slammed the mental break. Of, what did he just say? And you know, you know, unpack that. I know what you mean yeah. already. Okay, but yeah, sure. Unpack it a little more. Okay, well, so this actually comes back to so we could put data against this, um, but the uh, the attributes that we're studying in these um, in these surveys that we run with customers, trying to determine their likelihood of buying a bigger solution with the broader the broader scope and the higher price, we call that what we call we call that a high quality low regret deal, which is a deal where the mm -hmm. customer buys the bigger solution and feels good about it at the same time. And and the, the statistically significant drivers that sit behind the likelihood of that purchase going up are often uh, denominated in customers' confidence. Things like how confident, so on a, again, on a scale of one to seven, um, they would answer questions like, we were confident we asked the right questions as part of this purchase, and they give us a score there. And we'd ask them another question around. So uh, we were confident that we looked at the uh, the, the information. We considered the information that matters most. And so there's a whole series of these kinds of questions. They would either agree or disagree. And when you run all the analysis, all the math, what you find is the level of confidence in all these different attributes turns out to be critically important. But here's where that quote comes from. 
is that when you look at these attributes, it's things like, are we so when you when you realize we we need to solve for customers' confidence, well, confidence in what? What do they need to be confident in? And it's the, the things that we're testing would be things like, are we confident we considered the right questions? Are we confident we considered the issues that matter most? Are we confident that we found the right, the, the best, are we confident we found the best solution? Things like that. Now, what's interesting about each of those attributes, the first thing that jumped out at me when I looked at them is that, how do you know? So like, so do we all, so imagine you sitting around with 10 of your colleagues and you're trying to make a decision on a multi-million dollar purchase and everyone, and someone says, well, are we confident we asked the right questions? How do you answer that question? Like which, which mm -hmm. questions are the right questions? I don't know. Are those the right questions? Someone else might say those are the right questions. What's interesting about it is that when you look at all these attributes of confidence, right questions, things that matter most, the best idea for our company, not a single one of them is objective. You can put numbers against them, but it's still a matter of opinion. Every one of those is an is a subjective metric. And so much of what happens in a B2B purchase, maybe this has always been true. It's just an interesting way to think about it from my perspective is that so much of what happens in a B2B perspective is not a decision on based on what you know. We know these things. We know those are the right questions. It's actually, you don't know those are the right questions. You believe they are. You feel they are. Or more, it's my point, you're confident that they are. And that's what matters. It's, it's what, what, what leads a company to make a big purchase is not what they know. It's what they feel or how they feel. And specifically, do they feel confident that those are the right questions, that this is the best answer, that they have looked at the information that matters most. And this is where going all the way back to your question for, I don't know, was it two hours ago about sense making, right? Which is, mm -hmm. is this is where the sense making sales rep comes in in this world is like, because the sense making sales rep we found in their way of helping customers process information specifically helps that customer feel more confident in those things. And, and whether you think about sense-making or challenge or any of it, one way, so one takeaway from this whole conversation, this whole body of research is what are you as a sales professional doing to help your customer feel more confident in themselves and the decisions that they make? And, and you broke it up into three categories. You had the teller, yeah. the, the person that was telling them, giving them information, and then the sense-making. And obviously sense-making yeah. one. You know, isn't this, you've already pointed to it, that it's almost like full circle, right? You get back, you, the brain is the brain is the brain. Yeah. Right? That amygdala yeah. will light up or feel good, whatever you want it to. And yeah. I think we get back to the people by emotionally and justified rationally. Yeah. The justified rationally is, did I ask all the right questions? And you try to go through all that, the mental, you know, checklist. But at the end of the day, it said how you feel. And that's what, that, that, that statement stopped me because he goes, how do you feel about what you know? I was like, Yeah. It's kind of a, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like I do, I do. Let, let me, let me, um, let me uh, split a hair if I could, right? Because sure. that, of course that thing's been around for a long time. And and to some degree it's, you know, people buy with their, was it buy with their emotions and rationalize with their, uh, yeah, whatever totally. it is, right? Yeah, they, there, thank you. It's something like that. But, it, <laughs> but, but what's interesting is this is, if you will, at the very least, it's a variant on that idea, right? Because the, yeah. when, when we, when we say people buy with their emotions, Generally, I think what we're at least what I've always thought of when I've heard that is that they it's so therefore it's their emotional attachment to the thing they're buying, right? It's their emotional right. attachment to the rep selling to them. And, and those things I think are important, but that's actually not what this is about, right? So this is there the thing that I think is so interesting about this research is that it's the customer's emotional state about their level of confidence, how they feel about themselves. And, mm -hmm. and to, so when you talk about a premium consumer product, like I'll buy a certain car, a certain uh, 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 mm -hmm. cell phone or something because it makes me feel good that I've got that brand. That is true. But that's, uh, that again, is that's not really what this is about. Although I suppose Correct. that could be in Correct. play here. This is simply about, 
I, you know, like it, well, it's really. Let me put it this way. I have. By the now, way, I think I get you. I'm splitting the hair. I get you. I'm splitting did, did, the hair. Did, I don't know. Does it feel like I'm splitting the hair or not? Yeah, but if, no, 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 no. This no, no. It's a, it's a good one though. If you, yeah. If you, no, it is different. It is yeah. different. I'm glad you're highlighting the different. Yeah. One is kind of an emotional, almost irrational, exuberant type of buy. I want that Maserati. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then what you're talking about is I've gotten it. I've collected this data. I've got this content. And now how do I feel about what I know about this? Okay. So I, I recently bought a car and now this is a true story. Most of my stories are true. This one is, but the, um, uh, it took me three years to buy this car. Uh, so it, it took me three years of shopping and researching and using different apps and ways like, oh, this one doesn't have that kind of brakes I want, or this one doesn't have the kind of new technology or the heads up display or whatever it is, right? So I'll wait. But but then there's this other car and, wait, wait, there's, and it just, I, I couldn't pull the trigger and I couldn't pull the trigger and I couldn't pull the trigger. I finally, after three years of researching, I pulled the trigger on this car. And, and I love it. It's a great car. And I have I have an emotional attachment to the car. I still kind of hate myself, though. You know why? It's because one of the things I did on this car is I didn't research low profile tires. And, uh, and, and so I'll tell you, Victor, if you buy a car, you may or may not know this, but if you buy a car with low profile tires and drive it around Northern Virginia like I have, I've now had six flat tires in a year and a half. Right. So and those things are like not cheap. So the uh, and I'm thinking like, oh, I love the car. The car is great. I have an emotional attachment to the car, but I'm an idiot. Uh, you know, it's like I screwed up because I I, I missed something. And and by the way, I you know, I, and my wife gives me a hard time about it, which is like it's like. So I'll tell you, you know, it's you know, what I'm going to do next time I buy a car. First of all, I'm never going to buy a car again. And when I do, I'm going to take four years to buy the car. And and that's because not that I don't trust the car. I love the car except for mm -hmm. the tires. I don't trust me. And so what we need to do is the in, in, in this kind of world, I find it's kind of amazing that commerce happens at all. Uh, and I say that sometimes to our head of research, he tells me I'm an idiot, which is true. But he says, Brent, of course, commerce is still going to happen. People still have to buy machines and replacement products. and all. So, yes, okay. But it does make me wonder how much more commerce would happen if customers just felt more confident in themselves to make bigger, more disruptive decisions without having to study and research for, for sometimes years on end. And I think this is the thing that's missing about you customers buy based on how they feel. It's not just, do I have an affinity to the product? Do I have an affinity to the brand? Do I have an affinity to the rep selling to me? It's not even about it. Because I think oftentimes we talk about emotional connection. We talk about affinity, which is, I think, still critically important. I'm not de denigrating or downgrading. I think what's new, though, is this idea of confidence in oneself as you know, one of my colleagues wrote is really just a beautiful little piece of uh, language that he wrote around this idea. He says, you know, at the end of the day, I don't want my customers to say, I feel good because I chose you, which is what you're, I think that's the original version of like by customers mm -hmm. by an emotion. I, I feel good because I chose you. I think what we want is our customers say, I feel good because I chose well. Mm -hmm. I feel good because I chose okay. you versus I feel good because I chose well. Because if I, if I feel good that I chose well, you know what that means? I'm a good chooser. I'm good at this. Mm -hmm. I should. I should choose again. I should make another choice. You know, it's a, and that's where, particularly when customers now, our customers, our clients ask, it's like, how do we drive growth with existing customers? It's that it's the same ideas. The way you drive growth with your existing customers isn't just delight them into buying more because it doesn't work, as we know from our research. It's you got to make them feel good and their ability to make good choices on behalf of their company. And that kind of confidence will drive further purchases. I love that. So how do you do that? You, you yeah. highlight some of this in the paper that how do you give, you know, what process do you take a buyer through to yeah. get them to that certain level of confidence where they love pulling the trigger? So, so this is all right. Now we can go full circle back to the original research around what kind of sales rep sells effectively in this, this world of information that just operates in such a different set of uh, principles. Um, and, in, and so we actually studied uh, sales reps engagement style with customers 
vis-a-vis -vis information. Sorry, that sounded wonky, but we like, what are what are sales reps' information styles in, in engaging customers? There's all sorts of questions we asked to figure that out, but it boiled down to sort of three engagement types. And you mentioned them already. We call it giving, telling, and sense-making. And by the way, just as a quick footnote, because all of us will fall in this trap, I've done it. We originally called them the giver, the teller, and the sense-maker until I just mm -hmm. got royally beat up at a meeting with a bunch of heads of sales in London. They just completely took me out back and just knocked the bleep out mm -hmm. of me. Because they say, like, first you tell me to be a challenger. Now you tell me to be a sense-maker. Which one is it? And I was like, they were they were not happy. And, they, and it was a fair question. So we've changed it not just to be, like, not get the snot kicked out of us, but because we think it's more accurate. When we say giving, telling, and sense-making, the reason why we like that better than er is because we're not talking about a person. We're not talking about a profile. This is just a technique. It's, uh, we're trying to skinny this down to make this something that anyone, it's not you're born with this. It's it's the tool for your toolbox. How do you, whoever you may be, whatever your DNA, whatever country you're in, whatever industry you sell in, whatever your personality type, how can you engage customers in, not in giving or telling, but in sense making? Because first of all, what, so let me tell you just a brief moment on each one. So giving sales reps, giving sales reps tend to see the information they provide their customers as their primary source of value in the eyes of those customers. So they think every time I engage with my customer, I need to give them more information. In fact, they often come back into the organization, beat up sales, enable, beat up marketing, and say, I need another ROI calculator, another piece of collateral. And they'll say, why? And they say, because I'm talking to the customer again. I need something to say. And particularly when your customers are asking for more information, why would you not give it to them? It's the very thing that you're, they're asking for. So it feels very responsive. It feels like I'm doing absolutely the right thing. So that's the giving rep. The telling rep is almost the exact opposite. So telling reps we find often have a very deep amount of industry expertise. They often are selling into the vertical that maybe they were hired out of to sell. Um, they've been doing this for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. And their conversation with customers often start with something like, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I've got this bell down to two things you need to know. Let me tell you what you need to know. So it's very authoritative. It's very, in my opinion, here's what you, I'm telling you the right answer. We have found, and it's if we had, three hours to discuss, we'd go into like, I'd pull out the data and we go at this. But at the high level, what we found is customers are deeply skeptical of sales reps who engage in either one of those two information approaches. As, as polar opposite as they may seem, I'm skeptical of a giving sales rep because they're just not adding value. If, if my biggest challenge, Victor, is I'm already overwhelmed with too much information and you're giving me more information, you're just not helpful. So I'm not, I'm not, I don't really have a lot of faith in you to help me. And I don't have a lot of faith in myself to get myself out of the problem I've got stuck in, which is overwhelmed with high quantities of high quality information. The flip side though, is if you just come in and say, yeah, let's cut through all of that. I've been, I got your answer. Just take my word for it. What we found is particularly with millennials, but I, I, I don't know about you, but I keep thinking millennials are 20 somethings. It turns out they're 40 somethings and CEOs, right? They're actually adults now, right? So I don't know when that happened, but uh, particularly millennials we find because they're the first generation to grow up at least close to digitally native. And they've grown up in a world where they can fact check anything in a matter of seconds, and they don't have to take anyone's word for it. And so this whole idea of like, just take my word for it kind of sounds used car salesman. It kind of sounds like it sets off uh, it sets off skepticism alarms in your customers when you say, here's what you need to do, or here's what I would suggest you do, or here's my advice to you. The very things that for decades, I think, have been core to our sales strategy are now backfiring in interesting, interesting ways because they they actually, again, they, they, they raise the hackles of skepticism in your customers. The, the sense-making sales rep, rather than saying, here, let me give you more, or here, let me tell you what to do. The sense-making rep, the first thing that they do is, the, first of all, they just acknowledge the reality. You know, there's a lot of information out there. I would admit, did you see that way for it? Yeah, you saw, I know, right? And then did you see that? Yeah, I bet you're confused because I know I was. And I just, just 
go over to the other side of the table and just acknowledge what your customers are feeling. This is a moment of empathy, right? Which is, there's a lot of information out there. I would imagine some of it's confusing. You've heard a bunch of stuff from us. You've heard a bunch of stuff from other competitors, trade associations. It can be a lot. You know, if you'd like, I can just maybe sit down and just help you just try to make sense out of some of this. That's what a sense-making rep does. And, and they're quite good at it. Now, you might say, well, they're a sales rep. And, you know, I just know you're at the end of the day trying to sell me something. And that's probably true. That's why I think a lot of some of the best sense making happens outside of sales altogether. This is literally why companies like Gartner exist. Because people will pay or, or, or consulting agencies or, you know, you know uh, individual shops like yours. We are all in the sense making business. And the fact that we can have a business at all is proof and positive that customers are willing to literally quite pay. They value sense making. But there's no reason why sales reps couldn't do this as well. To, and, and it, it starts... It, it, it lands us in a very different place for sellers, I think, which is, is Victor, imagine a sales rep who actually will sit down with a customer and say, so here's our take on it. I would imagine you probably saw this from another company. This is probably true. Let me just help you find the overlaps. And here's a framework that we find to be helpful. At least I find to be helpful, kind of putting it all this together. You might want to consider these three or four questions. I can help you kind of find answers to them, but you're going to want to be able to answer these on your own and feel good about your answers. So what I'm solving for is the customer's confidence. I'm not solving for, do they like me or have they, don't read those white papers, read mine. It's like a complete non-starter in this world, right? So in fact, I talked to one head of sales. I'm not recommending this necessarily, but I think it's super interesting. I talked to one head of sales in the cloud business who um, is a brilliant guy. And he said, we did, first thing we had to do to, go on the sense-making journey was just to understand what is all the information our customers are considering. And in doing that, they did an audit, essentially talked to their customers and where do you get your information? What information do you find useful? You know, which pieces did you look at? What did you read? Had you read this? And in doing that whole process, what they found is that there was this one white paper that every one of their customers was reading. Prospective customers, existing customers, they're all reading this white paper. And this white paper was written by their direct competitor. And it was, and, and they looked at it and said, you know what? It's actually really good. It's, it's a good sort of state of the art of the industry right now. And everyone's read it. And, and so their first reaction was, gosh, we, we need to have something equally good. So our customers read our piece instead of reading the competitor's piece. And you guys need to get out there and start steering the customers away from their piece and towards our piece. And they, they kind of thought through that and realized that's a non-starter. This competitor is a huge brand. Everyone's going to read it. And so they actually went a completely different route. They said, you know what? Let's just embrace it. Let's just admit that it's a good piece of research and let's engage our customers on that piece of research and let's talk to them about it and say, have you read this? If you haven't, you probably want to. And by the way, we think it's really smart for these reasons. And when you read it, I got to imagine you might have a couple of questions. Here's at least our take on how to answer those questions. And so again, I'm not suggesting to say you sell based on your competitor's collateral, but it actually worked for this company because what they were doing is really what you need to do in this world is just helping your customers make sense out of all the information out there that they're going to find one way or another. So uh, I just wanted to expand on that piece because yeah. I love the comment you made about, you know, that you should audit the information that your clients know. Yeah. It's just, it's simply brilliant in its simplicity. You know, if you, if you audit the, it's a really interesting question about this information audit. It's like, how do I do that? And why would I do that? Because what if I find out that they're looking at stuff that's better than mine? It's like, well, better to know than not to know. It's it's really hard to help your customers make sense of all the information if you don't know what information they're looking at, not just from you, but from other competitors, trade organizations. And oftentimes we'll get the question like, well, how do I do that? How do I audit the information my customers are looking at? And the simple answer, not to be somewhat tongue in cheek, is ask them. (laughs) <laughs> which is, mm-hmm. you know, take the time to, to, you know, whether it's surveys, whether it's customer calls, whether it's your marketing team, uh, there's, there's different ways to do this, but um, 
it is, uh, or, or just do a mock purchase experience yourself in your own organization, have someone on your team pretend that they're a buyer and buy your solution or a solution like yours. But one way or another, having that view, because this is what your customers see and understanding what your customer sees from an information perspective in this world uh, turns out to be critical. And, and by the way, sometimes it's just as simple as saying, how much research have you done? Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be complicated. And they'll, they'll start giving you the information. I, and, I and a pivot. couple of follow-ons on that real quick. So what, what information have you looked at? Um, was it helpful? Uh, what questions did you have as a result? Um, where did you go next? Uh, and and it, particularly for customers who have successfully bought, one of the best questions I think ever to ask them is, if you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently to make your life a little easier? That's a great one to right. ask. That's perfect. That's perfect. I love that. I, I want to pivot just a little bit because yeah. how, how do we use... Man, I mean, Brent, you, you hear all this, all this technology, all these players are in the market. You know what the yeah. technology landscape looks like right now. It's a mess. It's almost like a, it has, it's reminiscent of the dot-com. Yeah. All these different technologies, companies just popping up everywhere. Everybody offering their specialty in terms of uh, adding something to your CRM. How do, yeah. you see, how do you see these sales enablement platforms, you know, coalescing around something like a CRM? What do we use for our tech stack? And then tied back into you as a salesperson. So be the company now. I got a sales force. Yeah. I need to train them on sense making. I got all this technology. Brett, any thoughts on how this might work? Um, uh, to some degree, yes. This is where I think the fact that Gartner and CEB are now a combined organization is a real strength for us because I've got colleagues now, particularly because Gartner's, of course, DNA, their whole background is technology, right? And and more that, so than it ever was for us at CEB. Right. And so I've now got a whole uh, set of colleagues who are much deeper and smarter, spend all their time all, every day studying these kinds of questions. You know, in some ways, it's it's nothing new. If you go back, so some of your listeners will know Scott Brinker. Scott Brinker is is well known as a writer uh, and researcher on Martech and mar the marketing uh, the Martech stack. And he's got that famous graphic. It's a poster with like I don't know, it's five thousand. The next year was six thousand. I think lately it's been seven or eight thousand logos of all I've the different it. providers. Yeah, and Scott's famous for that graphic. It's an incredibly compelling graphic. What's interesting is when Scott approached that, he was approaching it from a marketing angle. But I, I would imagine. He could make some hay doing the sales version of that. And to some degree, there'd be huge overlap, but to some degree, they're different. But to your point is, well taken. I get emails, I don't know, at least once or twice a week saying, hey, we've developed a software. We'd love to get you thinking about it. And I send them over to my colleagues who do this kind of thing. But mm -hmm. um, the, I think the thing that's more interesting to me, and I think to many of us on our team right now, is is not so much the, the which... Um, uh, which app do I need and how do I integrate it into a CRM? I think the bigger thing that we all need to be understanding more deeply is AI and machine learning. And what mm -hmm. we're now seeing companies doing with AI and machine learning, uh, I just got off a company, that, a tech company you guys would all know, um, just yesterday, they were walking us through stuff they were doing with AI and the analysis, of, like pipeline analysis, where you get this massive amount of data uh, across your pipeline and just run a machine against it and say, all right, companies with these kinds of characteristics or customers are behaving in this mm -hmm. manner are higher likely to move forward and or more high like, highly likely to close. And you can put that kind of data in front of your sales team to increase their close rate. That mm -hmm. stuff's pretty mind boggling. Uh, and and it's, it's not even coming over the horizon. It's here now. And I think where we'll be in two or three years is probably well beyond what most of us, certainly I can imagine. I told him a liberal arts guy. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that's where a lot of our thinking is right now. And I think that sales leaders, whether you're a rep or a, sale, a CSO, if you're not thinking about AI, machine learning, big data, and how to use big data to your advantage in selling, you're probably already a little bit behind. Yeah. I had a chance to interview uh, Jim Dickey, mm -hmm. 
over at Sales Masteries. We talked, yeah. we, we were having an AI machine learning conversation about where yeah. everything's going. And some of the stuff he was highlighting to me, uh, I, I think I'm pretty well versed. And he just reminded me I'm not. Right. It's changing <laughs> he, so fast, right? This is why we literally have our team, you know, teams of I've colleagues who that's all they talk about and all they research and think about because it it's, you know, because a lot of the stuff that I talk about in research was sense making, buyer enablement, challenger. Hmm. These are, it's kind of to your somewhat, you know, tongue in cheek point earlier, but I think it's absolutely accurate. I, I tend to gravitate more towards the human side of selling. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but as a result, I think I personally am a little behind, not Gartner as a team, but I personally mm-hmm. am a little behind on some of the technology aspects of it. And I think it's it's changing faster than any of us have ever. I, we've never, None of us have ever seen it quite like this before. Uh, no, no, no. I mean, and, and I remember starting, yeah. uh, I started my career at AI. But it yeah. was back then. It was just an expert system, a rule-based system. Yeah. Now you actually have real machine learning, and so I do want people to actually just watch you present. By the way, if you're if you're listening to this on audio, you have to go watch the video because you can only really appreciate <laughs> uh, Brent's enthusiasm and animation. I'm you got to watch him on video. But Brent, any closing remarks? Uh, where can they find out more information about you, my friend? Um, well, uh, everything that we do at Gartner is at Gartner.com, and that's probably the best place to find us at, in the Gartner sales practice. Uh, we we continue to publish as much as we can out into the the, the market of ideas through videos and online. Uh, we have our big um, uh, someday we'll get back to our big sales conference in Vegas, hopefully, mm-hmm. <laughs> which runs every fall. Um, but if anyone is not a client of Gartner would like to be, uh, by all means, we'd love to talk to you and talk to you a little bit about what's available. The, the nice thing is once you get sort of, quote unquote, inside the firewall, then it is much more of a collaborative set of a huge team of advisors and analysts who spend time. We're on the phone all day, every day with heads of sales and our teams, uh, just helping them take these ideas and do something with them. And that's where it gets that's where it gets really fun, because that's when you see people doing incredible things with sense making and taking the idea and turning it into something that applies to them. And then it comes back to us and we teach it back to the world based on that sort of new iteration. And we all get this is why I still do this after all these years, because we mm-hmm. all just we just get smarter. And it's just yeah. it's fun. It's really fun. No, man. I, I, I love the work over at Gartner. Like I said, I'm always like tracking you guys down, looking at your studies, <laughs> reading through it, <clears throat> not paying for it, uh, but but enjoying you. Uh, and, you know, two things. One is don't change how you present, man. You're like the most enjoyable presenter I've oh, seen deliver kind. like intellectual content, but you like having fun. And, you know, because sometimes these people deliver content. You're like, oh, God, I just want to shoot myself. Yeah. Yours is like it's entertainment, but great content. And I love it. And then I just I got to give you some smack about this uh, this title of yours, man. If I can close it out this way, because oh, you mean to. my title? Yeah, yeah, your that's... title, uh, Gardner Distinguished, folks. I want you to hear that Distinguished VP. Can I you may explain dis- that to I me. Distinguished Vice <laughs> President. All right, I read so... that. And go, what is that like? A, like some type of royalty? Like you know, like just... Sir, Sir. <laughs> I'm gonna call you Sir, Sir Brent yeah. Adams. To be super clear, you are by no stretch the first person to give me a hard time about this, particularly people know me. Um, and also to be also very clear, I'm a taker, not a maker on my title. Um, but the, the it's interesting because Gartner. So I I'm I'm a I like to call myself a defrocked academic. I used my career used to, I'm a trained academic. I used to be a professor at Michigan State before I came into this world. Of all things, I was a professor of linguistics in German. So this, by the way, is where the speaking style comes from because I used to come into class on a Thursday morning at nine o'clock and a class of students were there only because they were required to be there, not because they wanted to be there. And I would look at them and say, good morning. And they'd say, I want to die. Right. So the, uh, so I would just tell them, look, I'm going to put you on my back and I'm going to carry you for 60 minutes, but one way or another, you're going to learn something. Right. And that's, yeah. and that's kind of where this came from, which is uh, just a love for your topic, but also just a deep enthusiasm to get people fired up. But the, um, 
But um, in, in the academic world, there's things like fellows and scholarships and distinguished and all that. And what's interesting is Gartner has taken some of that language and ported it over into uh, the business okay. world. And it always sounds, in my mind, just a little bit funny. So, yeah, just I, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. I'm just Brad. Uh, That's uh, all I am. All right. Well, on that note, I'll wrap up. Uh, this is uh, I've just finished talking to Sir Brent Adamson. Ah. We'll just call him Sir, you know, royalty knighted by the by the queen herself. I'm almost sure. Hardly. But anyway, that's it for this Sales Influence podcast. Leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you find this podcast. Also, check out Brent Adamson. Go to Gardner.com. Is that correct? That is correct. Gardner.com for more information. Uh, but do follow him on YouTube. Like I said, he posts a lot of great webinar videos. Some of the interviews or conversations you've had with your colleagues, I think, are exceptional. The content in there is just wonderful. So, again, check him out. And this is Victor Antonio signing off, always reminding you, selling ain't hard when you have the intelligence and you know how. Take care. <laughs>